shoulder pain, hip pain, knee pain, sciatica. If you're experiencing any of these and perhaps considering surgery, this episode is a must listen. We're going to hear why the imaging doesn't tell the full story and what else we can learn about our pain. Welcome to Elder Health Connection, a podcast where I gather innovators in elder health care to discuss their unique perspectives on caregiving and care receiving. My name is Caroline Morris, and I use my combined experience in biochemistry, physical therapy, health coaching, and growing up next door to my grandparents to dig deep into the complexities of aging and then draw out practical solutions that can fit into your life. I record this show from my home in Alexandria, Virginia, sometimes with the input from my dogs, Benny and Barry. Thank you for joining us today. Today, we have Dr. Mitchell Yass joining the podcast. Dr. Mitch is the creator of the Yass Method for diagnosing and treating chronic pain. He developed his method over 20 years, treating thousands of patients, resolving their pain, and returning them to full functional capacity. He has stopped thousands from getting unnecessary surgeries and resolved the pain of thousands of others who had surgery that did nothing to alter their pain. He was a real pleasure to interview, and I think you'll hear right away his passion around the topic of pain, especially joint pain and low back pain. And this interview, I think, is a really nice continuation of our discussion last time with Dr. DeLon Canterbury, who opened our eyes to some of the dangers of pain medications, not only opioids, as most of us are recognizing as a problematic drug class, but also NSAIDs, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen, Motrin, Aleve, Advil, things that we think are safe because they're over the counter can actually be quite damaging. So if you haven't heard that episode, please go back and listen to the previous episode on medication safety. And then for this episode, we get to hear some very concrete information about ways we can resolve some of these pains without medication or surgery. So buckle up. It's a high energy, great episode, and I can't wait for you to hear it. All right. Today we are talking with Dr. Mitchell Yass. Welcome, Mitch. How are you doing? I am doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, you're welcome. And I'm so excited for us to talk about pain and what actually causes it and how it's not exactly what we think a lot of the the time. Absolutely. So can you tell us a little bit about how you came to be passionate about this topic of pain diagnosis and why you've built your career around it? Sure. So my passion for pain really relates to my understanding of muscle and its connection, which really relates to my original issues growing up of self-esteem. And as a result of being this thin guy, this guy who was the 99-pound weakling who had sand kicked in his face, felt compelled to try to put muscle on. 
And from age 19 to 26, I used all the standard ways, the Joe Weider ways, the Arnold Schwarzenegger ways, and nothing seemed to take. And finally, at 26, it was the craziest thing I said. I remember taking a high school physics course, and I think of weightlifting as relating to gravity, and gravity is a force vector. So maybe you could use the laws of physics to help you lift weights better and put muscle on. And I started applying laws of physics, force vectors, lever arms, fulcrums, and things like that. And over the next four years, I put 40 pounds of muscle on. I went from 160 pounds to 200 pounds. Highly unusual. And I'm talking no steroids or anything like that. This is just hard work, discipline, and a very unique understanding. Just about this time, I was in my, the end of my first career, which I was a project manager in construction and just became disillusioned, didn't see there having value in it and wasn't satisfied. And so I ended up taking a job in a gym and, and this guy tells me, you know, you can work on people's bodies and you don't have to go through the extent of becoming a physician with that level of education. There are these other jobs like physical therapy, occupational therapy, exercise physiology. And so I looked into the physical therapy thing and that's the path I decided to take. And the initial part of that, you're, it's, it's education, you're taking courses and stuff. But then finally, towards the end of that, you actually um, do affiliation where you're working with patients and the student format, but under the supervision of a physical therapist. And so as I'm doing this to me, like someone's in front of me and they're having pain, the most logical question I had was, can you just show me where your pain is so I can understand what you're talking about? And I instantly am coming to the realization that where you were taught that in terms of pain, the answer is, that the person get an MRI, it finds a structural variation like a herniated disc, arthritis, stenosis, and pinched nerve, and you treat that. When I started asking where their pain was, shockingly, it was not the place it would have to be if the identified structural variation were to be causing their pain. It wasn't where it should be. Well, by definition, that should mean that there's no connection between the identified structural variation and the pain being experienced. So I reached this moral conundrum of I'm fresh out of school. Do I just do what I was taught to do? Or do I say, maybe I should try to figure out what the tissue in distress is causing their pain? Because clearly that's what needs to be addressed. And I decided to take that route. And over the period of time I've been doing this, it became apparent to me, and I've used this number often, that more than 98% of cases I've treated, the cause was muscle. And that, in fact, by treating the muscular deficit, I've been able to make people pain-free and fully functional. So this has basically been a lifelong progression in my life. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense that first-year experience, really learning about muscles in your own body in terms of building up your, your muscles in a way that will work, and then just searching for what's actually going to help your patients improve. And I think by the time I got to PT school, they did educate us that, especially for the low back, the imaging is pretty much irrelevant for the symptoms present unless there's a significant injury impacting the spinal cord, for example. But just seeing a herniated disc on an MRI really has nothing to do with what the patient may be experiencing at the time. I, I would like to really fully clarify this understanding for people. Sure. So, so let's talk about the use of the MRI because this has been going on for 40 years. And over this past 40 years, 
The number of people suffering from chronic pain in the United States has reached 130 million and roughly 1 billion people worldwide. So either, yeah. yeah, it's one out of seven people in the world. So either they are doing an incredibly efficient and effective job at diagnosing and everyone just sucks at healing or there's something systemically wrong with the way you're getting diagnosed. And as a result, no one's getting the right diagnosis. Therefore, they're not having their pain resolved. So let's look at this wonderful use of the MRI. Number one, the MRI was not invented to identify the cause of pain. It was invented to identify tumors in the brain. That's what it was identified for. Somehow, miraculously, it got a secondary usage and it started being used to identify the cause of pain. No studies, nothing like that. It just got started to be used. Let's talk about the concept. Here's the way it works. You have, let's use the back pain concept. You have back pain, you get an MRI. It says you have a herniated disc. It's identified for the first time because no one's just arbitrarily getting MRIs. They're getting them at the time they're having their pain. So the first MRI identifies the herniated disc at the time of the pain. Therefore, it is asserted to be the cause of the pain. That theoretical principle is called correlative theory or junk science. It is the equivalent of me saying, if I open my front door when the sun rises, I could say opening my front door causes the sun to rise. So it's really relating to correlation, not causation. So to make it very clear, the MRI would show that you also have two elbows at the time of the pain. I think everyone would acknowledge that they do in fact have two elbows and then MRI would identify that. Therefore, based on the same exact logic, I could assert that having two elbows causes your pain and you need your elbows removed to resolve your pain. Same exact theory, no difference. Secondly, if we're saying that herniated discs cause pain, again, pure logic, this is scientific, the, uh, the way the scientific model works. If herniated discs cause pain, what would you expect to find in people who don't have pain? The answer would be no herniated discs, right? That should make sense, straight logic. Unfortunately, by 1994, the first study showed that of those people who don't have pain, 70% have herniated or bulging discs. To take it one step further, more recent studies showed over the age of 60, over 90% of people with no back pain have degenerative disc disease. So either there is a bizarro world degenerative disease that causes pain or the people in pain have the non-causing pain degenerative disc disease and it just so happens that an adjacent tissue is in a back distress causing the pain. Which one sounds more logical? Yeah, I'll let the listeners pause and think about it, but I know my answer and your answer. Let's agree, I understand, that for 40 years, you have been told this, and you're not going to go to an orthopedist, neurologist, physiatrist. Everybody's going to tell you that this MRI is, is accurate and the gold standard. I'm telling you, step away from the general principle that if a lot of people tell you something very often, it means it's factual, which is a complete fallacy, to what is the logical principles behind its usage and does it meet the standard of logic? And it's not even close. Here's a big one. Let's say you bent down and suddenly you got back pain, right? I would hope that the average person would consider that maybe you strained the lower back muscle, that you suddenly just from bending down, that your body isn't designed to just pop a disc, naturally, as everyone likes to talk about. You didn't pop a disc from bending down to pick up a, a, a piece of paper, right? So let's assume that it is the lower back muscle strain. 
My question to everybody listening is, how does that show up on the MRI? The answer is, it doesn't. No muscular core shows up on an MRI. So if your rotator cuff is strained and it's altering the way the arm bone moves in the shoulder joint and you have pain at your shoulder region, that doesn't show up on an MRI. If you have numbness or tingling in your hand because you slept on your shoulder, which actually pushed the shoulder forward, overstretching your rotator cuff, and the rotator cuff strained and referred a symptom to your hand, the muscle in effect is referring it, not a nerve, but a muscle. That doesn't show up on an MRI. If a muscle in the butt strains because you have weight-bearing issues called the piriformis and impinges on the sciatic nerve, and you have a sciatic symptom caused by a strained muscle, that doesn't show up. If you have pain around your kneecap because your quad muscle, your front thigh muscle, is too strong in relationship to your hamstring, which is developed from the usage of it, and your quad is pulling too tight on your kneecap, so when you bend your knee, the kneecap gets compressed, causing knee pain, oh, that doesn't show up either. So I just gave you four primary mechanisms that muscle create pain, and I'm telling you, after almost three decades, and thousands of patients that more than 98% of those cases were that, none of that showed up on an MRI. So my question again is, why do why would anyone think that the MRI is valid? Simple question. Yeah, certainly not for diagnosing those common conditions that you mentioned. Nothing that you mentioned was rare. We see plenty of people with shoulder pain, knee pain, back pain, pain in the buttock, it makes sense. You know, I've, I've come through a hospital setting for most of my career. So I've seen a lot of imaging and a lot of rare cases where things do show up on imaging, but it's not really the cause of that pain that you're describing. It would be so, so, something so else. You yeah. Know? So let's talk about your, what you're describing. You're describing a hospital situation. Did that person arbitrarily get an MRI that led to the finding of a massive tumor in their brain? and then was sent to the hospital? Or did they lose complete feeling on their left side, which sent them to the hospital, which then got the MRI, which then found the tumor? Yeah, the exactly. Premise, the premise still goes and holds true. And this is what everybody must begin to accept. Symptoms matter. Symptoms tell the tale. You know why? Because symptoms are the representation of a tissue in distress. The tissue in distress is literally eliciting the symptoms as the way to create conscious awareness of the stress of that tissue. It's trying to tell you it's not working and it requires an intervention. What is the most common indicator that someone would feel comfortable understanding? Well, if someone is walking along and suddenly gets pain at their chest and their left arm, they don't say, I'm going to wait a few days and see if that goes away. They're probably going to say, holy shit, I think that's the sign I'm having a heart attack. I better go to the hospital. Did they know they were getting a heart attack? Did they get an EKG first? No. They had the symptoms that then led to the intervention and the diagnostic test. That's my point. Yeah. My point is clear. Symptoms tell the tale. Tell why? Because they're real. They're the body's attempt to tell you what's going on in it. And over 30 years, and in all the cases I've described, I utilized the interpretation of the symptoms to identify whether the cause was structural or muscular. And in more than 98% of this, I've been able to show it was muscular. So that's that that that's what my whole emphasis and my attempt to create awareness of is that you got to stop believing that the absolute answer is diagnostic testing 
and look more at the idea of what are my symptoms because the symptoms are real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some things I want to highlight with that is one, actually paying attention to the symptoms when you're the patient or as the clinician that you're believing what the patient says and want to hear about the symptoms isn't a given in a lot of settings right now. (laughs) Um, And even as you described, that was kind of my first interest in pursuing physical therapy was when I was in the athletic trainer's office in high school injured, and they could diagnose what was going on without imaging, without lab work, nothing invasive right there on the spot. And that was a big light bulb moment for me that there's a lot we can do through knowing anatomy, through paying attention to symptoms, listening to the person in front of us to bring about profound healing. That is, sounds like what you've been doing for three decades now and is really important work. I think so. I think, I think that the, so, so if any, everybody who's old enough or my age or older would remember, remember the show Marcus Welby or any of these shows from the 70s, the doctor would come and he'd spend a lot of time talking to the person and trying to understand the history and understand the symptoms the person was having. And that is the way this had been since the time of Hippocrates himself, who actually created the two words, diagnosis and symptom. He created it. It is the Hippocratic mindset of how to perform medicine. But when the MRI was introduced in the middle 80s, that became the standard. And the idea of taking a history and a full physical evaluation went by the wayside. And today, just about any person globally will tell you that if you go due to pain to any kind of practitioner, they're gonna say, here's a prescription for an MRI, when we get the results, we'll come back and we'll talk about it. And that's it. That's a problem. It is. And I think in general, just the compressing of the face-to-face time with the physician in general is another problem. I just had a physical that was 15 minutes, which is actually pretty long. Now. <laughs> but, is. you know, afterwards, I was wondering how much can we really accomplish in 15 minutes when... I'm with my patients thinking 45 minutes isn't enough and, or, you know, a a good initial eval can be an hour, hour and a half to even begin to understand what's going on. So I imagine you're spending quite a long time with your patients as well to understand what's going on, really taking that full history and bringing about a plan to resolve the symptoms. Sure. So my, my sessions usually run an hour. They could run an hour and a half, whether it's Zoom or in person. I, I want to just try to give you, uh, like, yesterday is a classic example. I want people to really hear this story. And then I'll give you, and then I'll give you another story. I got lots. Okay? Because these are real. This is really what's happened with people. And I'm guaranteed it's quite similar to what anybody listening is experience. So this guy comes in yesterday. He's a big guy. And he's an air conditioning guy, right? So he has to get down on his knees to do stuff to the air conditioning, okay? He's complaining of pain at his left knee. He's already had surgery a couple of years ago, and he's still having this knee pain right around the kneecap. And it's making it impossible. He cannot kneel down to get under the air conditioner, and it's really making his life very difficult. can't work. So here's the way it works. Number one, it doesn't matter. Let's say that an MRI showed that he had a meniscal. Let's just say he got an MRI and it's a 
every person who sees that MRI is going to say the cause of the pain is a meniscal tear because it was found at the time he's having pain around the kneecap. Let's just talk about the knee joint. The knee joint is, most people don't realize, is comprised of two joints, two completely independent joints. The joint between the thigh bone and the lower leg bone, which is where the meniscus, the cartilage exists. And then there's the joint between the kneecap and the thigh, okay? So they're telling you that a structural abnormality at one joint, the joint between the thigh bone and lower leg bone, is creating pain at a completely separate joint, the joint between the kneecap and the thigh. Now, if you're willing to accept that, if you think that's a valid premise, the next time you have ankle pain, I'll get an x-ray or MRI of your ankle, I'll find arthritis, and I'm going to tell you that your elbow pain is being caused by the arthritis of the ankle, and you need an ankle reconstruction. If you're okay with this, then let's do it that way. But if you want to go on the side of logic, then you would start to recognize that it should be fairly clear that there's no chance that the structure of one joint can cause pain at another. Therefore, the meniscal tear could never have caused this guy's pain around his kneecap. Just a fact. It's irrefutable. So now you got to say, well, what could cause pain around the kneecap joint, the joint between the kneecap and the thigh, and the thigh bone? Well, that kneecap tracks through that joint based on the pull of the front thigh muscle. It's what controls your ability to bend and straighten your knee. And that kneecap tracks through that joint as that movement's occurring. So the first step you're going to think about is, is there some sort of strength deficit or imbalance between the quad muscle, front thigh, and back thigh muscle? Well, if there was a deficit, if I check flexibility, I'm going to find a variation on the two sides. Side he's having the pain on and the side he's not. Well, I, that was the very first thing I did, and they were identical. That immediately made me eliminate the idea that the problem with the pain around the kneecap was coming from some imbalance between the muscles that attach to the knee joint. So then there's another possibility, and there is a muscle, or most people know about the IT band. Well, the IT band attaches to the kneecap on the outside. Well, if that was strained and shortened, that could actually pull the kneecap to the side. And therefore, it's not going to track directly through the joint. It's going to track to the outside, and it can rub the out of order. Well, the IT band would only potentially strain if a muscle that sits on the side of the pelvis, called the gluteus medius muscle, which is responsible for giving people balance, would have strained first. They kind of work together. So the next step I took was, I just said, stand on your right foot. Take your left foot off the floor. And he was able to do it quite comfortably. I said, stand on the left foot. And this is a big guy, 6'4", 220, 30, 40, 50 pounds. He's struggling to keep his balance. Then I said, why don't you now stand on that leg and bend that knee and go up and down three times? And as he began to go down, his knee caved in and he's like, God, yep, that's the pain. There's the pain. So what you recognize, which is something very hard for the average person to accept, is that the cause of the pain at the knee joint was weakness of a hip muscle which was not allowing him to maintain perfect balance so that when he bent his knee joint, that kneecap would stay directly in the groove. And I literally brought on the symptom, which is called the comparable sign, which by definition means I know how to make the pain begin, therefore I know how to resolve it. So amazingly, for this guy's pain around his kneecap, we strengthened his hip muscle, the gluteus medius, his hamstring, his butt muscle, and a muscle that supports the arch so that he would, when he would bend his knee, his knee would stay directly over his foot, the kneecap would track. He did it after the treatment, one treatment, an hour, and the, the pain was almost completely gone. Yeah.
it, I mean, that speaks to having someone skilled in this area, being the person to actually evaluate and treat the people right. with, with pain, which is a lot of the rationale for why in our profession, there's a lot of advocacy for direct access, basically cool. bypassing the physician referral so that if someone has pain, musculoskeletal pain, often they can just go straight to the physical therapist like you who knows how to treat it saving money by not having unnecessary MRIs or appointments. And then of course, referring back to the physician, if it's not, a, not something we know how to treat. So I think he, yeah. yeah the, 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 the important point is that let's say you went to an orthopedist, does he know about the gluteus medius is direct relationship to the function of the knee joint? Is that part of their curriculum? No, of course not. So if in fact there is a muscular deficit creating the symptom, which I'm saying there is in more than 98% of cases, even when structural variations are found on the MRI, unless you go to someone who understands how to identify those muscular yeah. causes, you're basically going to be misdiagnosed and mistreated, therefore. So the person has to start taking responsibility to make decisions about how they want to be treated, especially if you're already on You've already had your, your first joint replacement. You're on your third revision and you're still having pain around your kneecap. And you're saying to yourself, well, I do really trust that guy. I think he really will figure it out. Probably the sixth to seventh revision. I bet you that's the one that's going to do it. No, at some point you're going to say something doesn't seem right. I've given the guy plenty of chances and it still hasn't worked. Maybe that guy's, maybe, I'm not saying it's the guy or the woman. I'm saying maybe their education isn't designed to identify your particular cause of pain, which in 98% of cases is muscle. Yeah, so. you're reminding me. So the, the first surgery I observed was a total knee replacement. I was a PT student at the time and they opened up the woman's knee and everyone around the table was like, huh, it's not that bad. And then cut it right off and replace it surgery. anyway. And yeah. I was horrified. I was like, if it's not that bad, why are you going through with the, the surgery? But that, you know, that wasn't the thought process no. there. Not when you're in the operating room by that point. Yeah. yeah. So, so let me give you, I want to give you another story. And then we could talk about some of the generalized quote unquote causes of pain that people have been told. And let me just give you the logical analysis things like arthritis and some of these other things. So this is a really almost funny story, but it wouldn't have been funny if the guy got the knee replaced. Guy is standing on a train. He goes to step off onto the platform and he suddenly gets pain in his knee area to where he cannot wait there. It is crippling pain. So he's on the train, no pain, steps onto the platform, mess. And for the next couple of weeks, he's hoping it'll go away. It doesn't go away. Goes to the orthopedist, Orthopedist does an MRI and says, I'm sorry to tell you, my friend, you're bone on bone. Here's the picture. You see how small it is there. There's no college. You need a knee replacement. Well, just so happens this guy happens to know somebody who knows me, and he comes in. So he tells me the story that he's standing on the train, no pain, steps onto the platform, pain, and is told that that's from being bone on bone. So I'm going to teach you pure logic. And basically, the important thing to understand about where my background is is that I was taught analytical thinking when I was eight years old. I only know logic. I, it's really not about curriculum. I just look at everything and, and make logical decisions about things. So let's say that the person is bone on bone, that in fact, bone on bone is 
causing his pain. He did not have pain on the train. By definition, that means he was not bone on bone. He stepped onto the platform and had pain. So this orthopedist is telling this gentleman he spontaneously, <laughs> spontaneously developed bone on bone. Does someone want to agree that that sounds like that makes sense? That's logic. Uh, yeah. That doesn't sound logical to me, right? Yeah. So that's number one, not a good sign. That's a minus one in the orthopedic towel. Now, if in fact you're bone on bone, that is to say there's no joint space between the thigh bone and lower leg bone. And let's be clear. Don't give me the crap that you mean. Well, there's a little joint space. If you're going to tell someone they're bone on bone, you better be implying it's zero. No joint space. Bone on bone, okay? Well, for the entire planet, they have a joint space in their joints, and there's got to be a reason, and that is because that space is required for the bones to move a little bit on one another to allow for range of motion to occur. So if, in fact, you're bone on bone, that is to say there's no joint space, I would have to assume that there would be a major loss of range of motion, and at that end point, if I tried to push the person through that range of motion, it would feel like a bone sitting another bone, stopping them, right? So that's what bone on bone to represent. So I checked the guy's range of motion, and it's the exact same as the unaffected side. Strike two, no loss of range of motion. So next, I say, where's your pain? And he points to a spot. Now, bone on bone occurs between the thigh bone and lower leg bone. So there's a space called the joint line. I would have to press on the joint line, and this guy should go through the roof. It's bone on bone. It's in fact wasn't his pain. So I pressed on his joint line, and he didn't have any pain. But then I moved about two inches lower, and I pressed on his body, went through the roof. And magically, that's called the pezzanserinus. That's where the medial hamstring attaches. That's weird. So I said, I'm going to press along the tendon all the way back to the middle of the thigh, along his medial hamstring, and the guy had a cow. That's weird. That doesn't sound like what I'd expect for bone on bone. Then I muscle tested his hamstring, and it was weak, flexibility, force. And I said, wait a second. The location of his symptom, remember, I keep telling you with symptoms that tell the tale, seemed to represent that he strained his hamstring. Now, that might be a possibility if you were standing on a train and then you stepped off awkwardly. That sounds like that makes more sense. So I massaged out his hamstring strengthened it and he walked away pain-free and fully fine. yeah and if he had had that knee replacement that would not have helped the hamstring at all besides so, being a completely uh, unnecessary surgery but so there's you know. there's the orthopedist yeah and the yasmin three strikes three strikes against the diagnosis given by the orthopedist everything telling me that what i said was right and then followed by the treatment proving that I could make the person pain-free and fully functional. I want people mm -hmm. to understand this is the difference. Mm -hmm. This is the way you have to look at this. What makes more sense? An image being interpreted by an individual who does surgery for a living or a guy who's looking and listening to what your body's telling him, which is completely real to help understand what tissue is failing and eliciting the very symptoms you're experiencing. Which one do you think sounds more like the most appropriate direction to go to get a right diagnosis? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I think you've, you've explained it well, um, but there is a lot of unlearning that we have to do. And in your years of working with patients, 
How do you see that unlearning unfold? Like what is often the trigger for people to kind of wake up and choose another approach? Well, well, the reason the reason people are searching for another approach is the straight across failure and the ability to resolve things from the neck to the toe. That that you know, I'm in the. This is the best time for a guy like me because all the surgeries have failed. They're done with the opioids. Um, being told that it's in your head. There's a whole new movement now. That pain is actually just in your head. That it's not a direct indication of a tissue in distress, that the brain is just arbitrarily shooting off signals. That came in 2013. So uh, being told that it's psychological, that you're making this up and all that. So people are just basically done. And that's why the planet's out on Google search. So they'll look. So my premise is I'm going to give you logical premises. I'm going to educate. I'm not going to tell you do this or do this. I'm just going to educate. You get to choose what you want to do. So let's talk about the premise of upright causing pain. People always, and and it's so funny when like someone will tell me, oh, you know, I have it. My sister has it. My mother has it. My uncle has it. Is arthritis hereditary? Well, all of you have two eyes. So then I'd ask you, is having two eyes I'm guessing no. So arthritis isn't hereditary. It's just that the planet has it. That's why you find it with so many people in your family. Now, we could differentiate osteoarthritis from rheumatoid, psoriatic, any of this type of stuff by the fact that osteoarthritis is actually a mechanical wearing down of joint surfaces. It is not inflammatory. How do I know that? Because what are the four symptoms that represent that inflammation is present? Heat, swelling, pain, and redness. If I sprain my ankle, heat, swelling, pain, or redness. If I hit you with a baseball bat, heat, swelling, pain, or redness. If you get a bee sting, heat, swelling, rain or pe- heat, swelling, pain, and redness, right? So those are the four symptoms. Well, every person, barring a couple, and I've treated close to 15,000 people who had pain, didn't have swelling, heat, or redness. So let's eliminate inflammation as a potential cause. Osteoarthritis occurs because there's joint surfaces of any joint is supposed to align perfectly 100% congruently, and the forces of the muscle surrounding are supposed to allow you to move the joint and, and the joint can absorb those forces. But if there's weakness or imbalance, there's a shifting of the surfaces, which then leads to maybe 80% congruency. 80% of congruency wasn't designed to take 100% of force. So as a result, it rubs inappropriately, tearing away the cartilage that sits at the end of the bone, exposing bone. Once that happens, you either have increased bone growth or deterioration of bone. That is the osteoarthritic process. And that happens so slowly, it takes years, if not decades, that it never elicits pain. How do you know that? Because I can tell you easily, as many people without pain can be seen to have the same exact arthritic changes as those with pain. To make it even clearer, studies have shown that there's no correlation between intensity of pain and severity of arthritic change. Well, if arthritis causes pain, you would think more arthritis should cause more pain. Well, studies have shown there are people with virtually no arthritic change, massive levels of pain, and those people with massive levels of arthritic change and no pain. This should immediately discount the idea that arthritis is causing pain just because it was found at the time of your pain. Again, you have to decouple your mindset of thinking that that means anything. It's just a correlation. It doesn't mean it's the cause. 
causation is found through interpretation of symptoms. And if in fact arthritis were to cause pain in a joint, it by definition, if it's a say bone spur in, into the joint space, it should be limiting joint range of motion. So pain isn't the representative of whether an arthritic change is causing symptoms. You also have to have a correlative change in range of motion. And I've shown that in almost all the patients that were told they had arthritis, they had full range of motion. So then how could you say the arthritis is causing pain? You can't. The first day of summer is Tuesday, June 21st. And I don't know about you, but I am in need of a refresh. So what I'm doing is from now until June 21st, I'm offering free one hour refresh strategy sessions for anyone who is willing to take the time and energy to focus on their health. To sign up for a refresh session, head on over to carolinemorris.com or you can click the link in the show notes. Back to the episode. Mitch, what do you think for people who have pain now, what would be a good first step for them um, to take to actually get resolution? So the very first thing I'd say to everybody is number one, is your pain constant? If your pain is constant and roughly the same level of intensity, that sounds like that's what you would expect from a structure, a herniated disc, arthritis, stenosis, pain disturbance, some structure creating your symptoms. But if you're going to tell me that at rest, you don't really have a lot of symptoms, but that at the time, if you do activity, it incites your system, that should be an immediate red flag that the tissue creating your symptom is in, flat, is in fact muscular. Then you should be starting to look for a muscular cause and seek someone who can help you get that. All right, Mitch, what are some other diagnoses that we should look out for as maybe not being the real cause of pain or warranting a further investigation? Okay, so to me, one of the biggest is sciatica. It's a very, very common type of diagnose, uh, type of symptom, pain from the butt down the leg, all the way beyond the knee to at least the foot. And the classic way of diagnosing it is going to get an MRI and they're going to find some kind of structural variation at the lumbar region, a herniated dystenosis, a pinched nerve. And they're going to say, since that's found at the time of your, your symptom, it is the cause. So I just want people to understand some, some very basic principles about sciatic, sciatica irritation of the sciatic nerve. Hopefully we can't get in too much trouble for saying that. So we have to say, well, if it's a nerve, how is it that something, a, a variation at the uh, of the structure of the spine could affect it? Well, it's important to understand that you have your spinal cord and at every one of the levels of the spine, a nerve root comes out of the spine not a nerve. Nerve roots eventually join away from the spine. So the sciatic nerve has no contact with the spine. So I don't care if you told me you have 20,000 herniated discs at the time you're having sciatica. That can never create sciatica because there's no connection between the two, okay? So if you're having sciatica, we're going to acknowledge that it's irritation of the nerve. So where does the nerve begin and end? Well, it begins in the gluteal region, the butt area, runs down the back of the leg and ends at the back of the knee. So if you were to have sciatica, by definition, it means you must have impingement on the nerve or something irritating the nerve somewhere in the butt, 
down to the back of the knee. By the way, most people who have sciatica, almost everybody, never complains of lower back pain. And yet they're being told the cause is in the lower back. That seems very peculiar, but I digress. Let's keep going. So what possibly can impact the sciatic nerve? Well, it turns out that there's a muscle called the piriformis, which runs from the sacral spine, part below the lumbar region, diagonally across the gluteal region to the hip joint. And it actually runs very, very close to the sciatic nerve. In 30% of the population, the sciatic nerve actually runs through the piriformis muscle. So if it were to strain, then it could impinge the nerve. Well, what would cause the piriformis to strain? Well, there's going back to that hip muscle issue that I talked about before, that muscle responsible for balance for the gluteus medius. If it strains, the piriformis can try to compensate and assist. That leads it to strain and impinge on the nerve. So the big takeaway is that sciatica has nothing to do with the lumbar spine. It is related to hip dysfunction. It is a muscular cause creating a neurological symptom. That is the key. And you'll know that because you're going to notice that you have difficulty weight-bearing on the leg that you're having your sciatica in. You're going to probably notice that one of your hips is higher than the other, right? They're all indications that a muscle is responsible, although you're having a neurological symptom. So it's a muscular cause creating a neurological Critical to understand that. Anyone who's trying to tell you it's coming from your back, you really don't want to go in that direction. It doesn't it's, it's just not logical. There's no logical proof of it. We can talk about one of the biggest ones. Right now, hip replacements and knee replacements have surpassed back by far. Everybody, the vast number of people who are getting that hip replacement are getting it because they're having groin region pain. The person gets the MRI or x-ray of the hip. It's told that, oh, you're bone on bone at the hip. So that's why you're getting the, the magical hip joint is referring to the groin. Well, again, logic will tell you there's no such thing. Joints can't refer. Nerves can refer symptoms. Muscles can refer symptoms. But joints can't. You're going to have pain in your joint. So let's prove that. What I would tell somebody, and if you came to me, is I would lay you on your side. I would take my hand and I would try to force the thigh bone end of the hip joint into the hip joint and see if I could refer groin pain. Bring the pain to your groin. And I could do this from here to eternity and you're not going to get it. But that would be the indicator that it is coming from your hip. I'm compressing the hip. It's referring to the groin. It doesn't happen. But then what if I press in your groin there and you go through the root? Well, that's what's known as point tender pain, telling us that it is the tissue in distress that is causing your pain, the one I'm pressing on. Well, it turns out there's a muscle called the sartorius muscle, and that constraints, creating groin pain. So if I press in the area and you have pain, that's telling me I've irritated the sartorius muscle, which is a muscular cause, and it's not referred from the hip joint. So that presentation will tell you that you don't have to worry about the arthritic change found. It's actually a muscular cause, again, relating to hip dysfunction. Um, those, to me, are two of the biggest ones in terms of shoulder. Let's always make sure that when we get a diagnosis of rotator cuff air, that that is not the cause of the pain. It can be a rotator cuff strain, and there's a big difference. A tear implies if someone's going to tell you you have a tear, an active tear, you better see bleeding, black and blue. So by definition, that's what it means. A tear means tearing of a membrane, cell membrane. So there's me. But for the average person, they're not getting black and blue or any of that. They don't even have a dramatic or traumatic event. It's simply they have difficulty raising their arm. And what that's really basically saying is that the mechanics of the joint aren't functioning properly because of muscular deficit. So again, it's a muscular force creating 
your inability to move your joint. So that's three really good examples of diagnoses that people are getting through orthopedists um, or neurologists trying to tell you that there's a structure creating symptom when in fact all the evidence presents that it's muscular in nature. Yeah, thank you for giving that overview and sharing a, a different way of thinking about these common, really common problems people are facing. If someone wants to work with you, Mitch, what's the best way for them to get in contact with you? So you could email me, even if you just want to know what my thoughts are about your situation, you could email me at drmitch at mitchellyas.com, or you can go to my website, which is livewithoutpains, it's plural, livewithoutpains.com. There's a contact us button. If you want to make an appointment for an in-person, I'm in Jacksonville, Florida, in-person session, or I do Zoom sessions. You could do that on the website. You pick and choose the day and time that's best for you for the Zoom sessions or even the in-person sessions. And that way we can work together. Great. And I'll have all of that information in the show notes as well. Do you have any closing thoughts for us or last words of wisdom to share? Sure. Just because a lot of people tell you well, the same thing over and over doesn't make it real. I'll leave you with one very important point. George Washington, the founder of the United States, was killed by his doctors. And this is factual. At the time, he had pneumonia. And at the time, the great technology thought of at the time for addressing pneumonia was to bleed the area, which was to get the infection out. So they bled him at his neck, which led him to suffocate, and he died. This is factual. Those tools are at the Smithsonian Institute. So if something doesn't make sense to you, just because you're being told it's right doesn't make it right. Try to become an advocate for yourself. And if everything has failed to this point, really, truly believe that there is an answer. Do not give up. Don't give up. I promise you there's an answer. I'm out there. I'm trying to spread this word out. And hopefully you'll come in contact, have the chance to use it, and reclaim your life, which is my hope for every person on the planet. Beautifully said. Thank you, Mitch. We appreciate your time and sharing your expertise with us and giving us the tools to get out of pain in a low risk way, much lower risk compared to surgery or many of the medications were prescribed and a more uh, logical way of thinking through symptoms. So I, I appreciate you sharing with us today. Thank you for having me and give me the opportunity. I really do appreciate it. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and does not create a provider-patient relationship between us. If you have questions about your health, please speak to a qualified health professional. If you would like to learn more about working with me as your qualified health professional, please visit carolinemorris.com. Did you know that gratitude is good for your health? If you found value in this episode, please share it with a friend and leave a rating or review. To keep the connection going, subscribe to Elder Health Connection on your favorite podcast player to get immediate access to upcoming episodes. Thank you for listening. With love and gratitude, Caroline.